Well, we are at the beginning of a new year. Somewhere I was told that uh, this is the last day that you can say Happy New Year. Uh, I don't know who came up with that rule, but I'm going to say it. Happy New Year. It's good to see you this morning. Wow, in the new year there are things that we just observe every year, don't we? If you drive by uh, the Export Fitness Place over here on Geneva Road or any Lifetime Fitness, the parking lots are full. Everybody's going to lose weight this year. Go buy it at the end of January and see if it's as full. Something happens as we move through. But we've set goals, and goals are not wrong. It's good to set goals. Maybe it's possible your company has set some goals for the new year. Uh, Maybe it's possible that you have set some personal and spiritual goals for the new year. It's a good practice. And yet while we set goals, we need to remember that our goals, our desires, need to be in sync with who our God is and with his character and with his values. If you ever take a look at our church website, you'll see that we have a section and we call it Core Values. The core values of Pleasant Hill Community Church. Uh, Sometimes, back in the day, we called that a statement of faith. But now we're 21st century people, so we call it core values. And yet, those values are not just something we have set there. They're values that help us as a foundation, as a church. What do we believe? What do we hold dear? What do we want to cling to? I want to submit to you this morning that every person And every organization has a set of core values. Even if they're not written down, we all have a set of core values that that drive who we are, that drive our decisions. Whether that's conscious or subconscious. And I want us to give deep consideration as we start this new year to the core values in our lives. I want us to ask ourselves individually, repeatedly, I want us to ask ask us as a church, how do the motivating factors in my life line up with the core values taught by Jesus? And those are the questions that we're going to be dealing with in the next weeks and months, as we are going to go through probably the most famous sermon in the Bible. It's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. If you go to Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. And we'll talk a little bit about some of that down the road. Uh, Matthew's Gospel, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew. It's the very first Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is very unique in its approach. We know that Matthew was a tax collector based on Matthew 9.9. We know that his Jewish name was Levi, and that's how he's called in both Mark and Luke. And as a tax collector, he was probably very wealthy because of the way that taxes were gathered in the time. And as a tax collector, he was probably very despised. One of the unique things that, will, that you see in the, the 12 that Jesus chose to be his apostles, his, fo- his closest followers, was you had a guy like Matthew who was a tax collector, and you also had a guy named Simon the Zealot whose 
desire before Jesus was to somehow, what do they say on the CIA movies? Neutralize Matthew. He, he wanted to see Matthew, and yet they came together under Jesus. It's amazing. So we have Matthew, this tax collector, and in Matthew 9, he hosts a dinner. And it was at that dinner that the Pharisees said to Jesus, or to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, because I came to the sick, the ones that know they're sick. And Matthew was one of those. So Matthew writes as a Jew with a very Jewish flair. And in fact, Matthew starts in a very Jewish way. The whole first chapter of Matthew starts with a genealogy. Because he wants to show his readers, who were largely a Jewish audience, that Jesus is a descendant of King David, therefore the Messiah, and more than that, a descendant, a direct descendant of Abraham, the one through whom God said all nations would be blessed. He gives very brief details with the birth of Jesus, and it only deals with Joseph. And then he emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecy. And by the way, that's key in the book of Matthew. Repeatedly you'll read, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said. So in Joseph, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said. The virgin will bear a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Later on, this was, here, here the, the Magi come, probably about two years after the birth of Jesus, and they come and they're going, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod is like freaking out, and he calls the leaders, and what do they do? They go to the book of Micah. And you, Bethlehem, Art not the least among the prophets, for out of you shall come one who will rule my people, Israel. So Matthew is very keen on that. Matthew deals with the temptation of Jesus more detailed than anyone else. And then finally we have Jesus beginning to teach in Matthew chapter 4. And his message is very simple. It's, we see it in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. It's a simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is after that preaching that Jesus, was. we just read, he heals the sick. And they, when Jesus started healing people, they came from everywhere. And when we read these things, we, we just can't fathom. By the way, news spread. News always spreads. And word of someone who was healing people from diseases spread. And they came from all over. And Matthew then places at the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus this section, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I will tell you right now, I don't know if this was one specific sermon that was given like that or if this is a compilation of teachings from Jesus. It, scholars will come up on both sides. We're taking it, obviously, as just one section, but we're going to break it down because there is so much here. And what we need to do this morning before we get started is we need to define some terms. And the first term that we need to define is the term kingdom of heaven. What does Matthew mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? When he says Jesus said the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you the simple definition, and then I'm going to expand on a little bit. The definition of the kingdom heaven is simply this. It's the totality of the realm in which God deals and works. 
The kingdom of heaven is the totality of the realm in which God dwells and works. God is the ultimate ruler. God is the creator. Everything God created falls under his realm. Therefore, it's all his kingdom. Uh, It encompasses both the physical and spiritual realities of our lives. Some people will limit the kingdom of heaven to the heart. You know, I asked Jesus into my heart, which is really not anything that you find in the Bible. And if we limit the kingdom of heaven to the heart and only this something spiritual, then we run the risk of not really changing behavior. But the kingdom of heaven deals with our behavior. Uh, Others will say uh, that the kingdom of heaven is this something in the future Some would call it the millennial kingdom. Well, if we limit it to that, then the people of the first century didn't have any clue. Nobody had ever, they hadn't talked about the millennial kingdom yet. And I think, again, when we put it way out in the future, then what does it have to do with me now? I don't think we should do that. I think we need to say that the kingdom of heaven is is, is now, it's here and I, I would like, I would suggest we need a holistic view of the kingdom of heaven. God is the ruler. All of the universe is his realm. And those of us who live on this earth are his subjects. And he invites us through creation at the very beginning. He invited humanity to be his representatives on this earth to reflect his glory, to build a culture for his glory. The kingdom of heaven is here and now both physically and spiritual. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, he's saying, the kingdom's already here. I've been reading uh, the late Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, and he uses a great illustration. And he says, suppose you've been invited to the home of someone quite wealthy for their home for dinner. And uh, you, you arrive on time and, and your host meets you and you sit on the veranda and you have some appetizers and some light conversation. And finally the host says, hey, dinner is served. And he, the host leads you down a hallway and he points into a door and he says, the dining room is here. Or the dining room is at hand. The dining room was always there. The dining room didn't just appear when he said dinner is served. The dining room was always there, and now you're being invited into it. And what Jesus, I believe, is saying is repent, change your thinking about God, because the kingdom is here right now, and, there are, and that's how you're going to enter it, is to change your thinking. It's not a future hope. It's not a past history. It's here right now. There's a second term that we really need to define Most of us think we know it, but we really need to define it, and it's the word disciples. What's a disciple? So often we think disciples, we think 12 men. 12 men, Jewish descent, chosen by Jesus to represent the 12 tribes of Israel as he is reinstituting a spiritual Israel, but it's bigger than that. Here's the definition I want you to keep in mind. A disciple is one who is learning to become like Jesus. The word disciple is a word that simply means to follow or to learn. And, and some people have said a, a, a good synonym is, is a, uh, an apprentice. I like that. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 doesn't make sense if the disciples were just the 12. 
because we're called to go and make disciples of all nations. But if the 12 are the only disciples, then work's done. Don't have to do that. But the work isn't done. A disciple is one who is learning to become like Jesus. Now, one other thing that I want you to be aware of. Matthew says when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up and he sat down. When a rabbi taught, he would sit down. And we think about Jesus sitting down and teaching. We have to have a little bit of a word picture in our mind. First of all, we have Jesus in the middle here of the screen. Yes. Jesus sat down. I want you to think of concentric circles. Here's Jesus in the middle, and the crowds were around him. Now, the crowds involved all the people. Okay, this is a little sacrilegious, but it kind of gets the point across. Years ago, there was a movie called The Life of Brian, and Brian was, the, and, and, and at one point, you're hearing Jesus talk, and he says, blesses are the peacemakers, and somebody at the back says, what did he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers. That's kind of really, you had the people on the outside of the crowds, that they were kind of there, they kind of heard, but they were there for the stuff. They were there to be healed. They were there for the food in, in the in book of John. They, they weren't there to just, they were there because there was something going on. Now, in the crowds are probably the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're not following Jesus, but they're standing right on the edge. But then there's another group of people that we call disciples. The disciples are those who really wanted to follow Jesus. Uh, In fact, in John 6, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, they've come back across the lake, people follow him, he starts talking about this weird stuff about unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have anything to do with me. And John 6 eventually says, at that, all his disciples left. The followers couldn't handle it. They were following Jesus. They were learning, but whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. That's too much. And they left. The disciples were those who were following. Among the disciples were the women like Mary and Clopas and different ones that are mentioned, Salome. They were following him. There were disciples other than the 12. The 12 are in the closest circle. And if we wanted to really get closer, Peter, James, and John are the inner circle. And both Matthew and Luke and Mark call them apostles. They were specifically chosen, as I said, 12 Jewish men chosen to represent the 12 Jewish tribes as Jesus is spiritually reinstituting the spiritual nation of Israel. So when you think about Jesus' teaching, think of those concentric circles. There's Jesus, there's the 12, there's the disciples, and there's the crowd. It would kind of be like if four or five of us got together at, at Starbucks and we were having a conversation. You know, we're the inner circle, as it were. And there might be somebody walk by and go, hey, I know you guys, what's going on? And then there's the other people that are kind of around. They're not really paying attention to us, but they might catch something. So we keep that in mind. So Jesus goes up on the mountainside. He sits down. And, and by the way, in Matthew's gospel, there are only four of the 12 in this Sermon on the Mount, if you look at Matthew's Gospel. It's in chapter 4, right before he heals the sick, it's Peter and Andrew and James and John. Those were the four that right now were with him. Matthew 9 tells us about the rest. And so they sit down. 
what brought about the sitting down, what brought about all of this was Jesus had been healing people. And now it's time to lay out his mission. Now it's time to lay out his core values. We are only going to deal with four of the core values this morning. Let me pick it up again, verse 1 of chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to them and he began to teach them. what we're going to look at in the sermon itself are initially are these characteristics that are called the Beatitudes. I want you to know a couple things about these characteristics. First of all, they are not entrance requirements to the kingdom. The entrance requirement to the kingdom is repent. Change your thinking. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about Jesus. The entry require, that's the entry requirement. These characteristics, they are states of being. These are identifying markers of someone who has God's favor or blessing. The word blessed, yes, you could technically say happy. It's not really about happy. It's a word that means one that's highly favored. And a person that's highly favored by God, a person that is in keeping with who God is, is going to carry certain markers. You, we all carry certain markers in our lives. You know, you can look at my son, and you can tell he's my son. You can look at, uh, at my daughters and see them next to Charlene and go, oh, yeah, I see the familiarity. Many years ago, in the 80s, when it was cool, I had a mustache. I had a mustache from 1981 to 2001. So for 20 years, I had a mustache. Some say, well, why did you not keep it? I didn't want the gray hair to show. Okay, I'm ego. Okay, I'll admit it. (laughs) I wanted to look younger again. One day, someone who hadn't seen me for a while was talking to my younger sister in West Virginia, and they said, well, we haven't seen Scott for a while. What's Scott look like these days? And she goes, oh, just put a mustache on mom, and you've got Scott. (laughs) I have characteristics that are like my mother more than I do like my father, you know. And, and so we all have these markers. And what Jesus is saying is the markers of God, the core values of who our Father, Heavenly Father is, the core values of one that's highly favored by God are going to be right here. And they are this. He starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me summarize it, then I'll expand it. As a follower of Jesus, I am spiritually impoverished in and of myself. As a follower of Jesus, I am spiritually impoverished in and of myself. The word poor in poor in spirit it is a word that means abject poverty. It's someone who possesses absolutely nothing. And if someone possesses absolutely nothing, if they have nothing to their name, nothing that they possess, then they understand that anything they get is a gift. Anything they get is a benefit from someone else. And so the the highly favored ones realize spiritually, I have nothing. I bring nothing to the table that is in any way endearing to God. Yes, I'm his creature. Yes, I'm created in his image. But spiritually, I am bankrupt. And I know that's not user-friendly. 
I know that's, that's not something that makes you have all warm fuzzies inside, but there's more to the story than that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is speaking specifically of the spiritual side of a person. We have gifts, we have abilities, we have all kinds of stuff, but spiritually, in light of who God is, we are poverty-stricken. And the one who's poor in spirit is fully aware of that fact, that they bring nothing to the table. The one who's poor in spirit realizes that when it comes to a relationship with God through Jesus, they bring nothing. It's all a gift. That is why I believe Jesus emphasized becoming like children. Because to become like a child is to come to the point where you know that you, 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 everything you have is given to you from your parents. Everything you have as a child, you, 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 you come into this world as a child and you are totally helpless. And when I get to the point where I realize, God, in light of who you are, I am totally helpless, then God says, now you're beginning to get it. Blessed, favor to the ones who understand spiritually they're totally helpless because, look, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the essence of repenting. That is the essence of changing my mind. To repent, to change my mind, to, to turn from I've got something to offer to saying, God, I, I have nothing. I'm just coming to you empty. And God says, now you're right where I want you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I think the reason that this one is first is it's the key to getting all the rest. The minute you and I think that somehow God is lucky that he chose us to be on his team, then we begin to miss the favor of deep relationship with him because we make it about us. A kingdom mindset flies in the face of the self-made, self-confident, self-believing emphasis of the culture. It's a mindset of understanding. I am dependent upon God for everything, and especially spiritually. Jesus continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. As a follower of Jesus, I should grieve that which causes God to be sad. As a follower of Jesus, I should grieve that which causes God to be sad. When I'm aware of my spiritual poverty, it makes me more sensitive to the things that cause mourning and grief in life beginning with sin. Do I grieve my sin? Do I grieve sin that I see? Do I grieve the things that make God sad? We all mourn. We mourn loss at every level. We mourn the loss of innocence. We mourn the loss of loved ones. We mourn the loss of relationships. We mourn the loss of possessions. But in God's kingdom, do we mourn the loss of relationship with God through sin? We need to grieve over the things that cause God to grieve. God grieves over sin. God grieves over injustice. God grieves. God, we find God's favor and experience in the depth of his comfort when we mourn what God mourns. Remember, it says here, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
See, our culture says medicate the pain. Our culture says take a vacation, go shopping, seek pleasure, eat chocolate, especially dark chocolate, increase your earning power. But none of that gives permanent comfort. It all goes away. If you bought a new computer or you got a new computer for Christmas, you've got all the latest, the greatest state of the art. In six months, there'll be a new model being advertised. It's just the way it is. Nothing fully satisfied. Comfort is only found, and I only find God's favor when I mourn what he mourns. And as I was thinking about this, my mind went to an obscure verse in the book of Ezekiel, one that I have underlined in a couple of Bibles. Ezekiel 18.23, God says this through the prophet, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. And the understood answer is no. Rather, I, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God doesn't see someone who's been wicked and all, and they get their comeuppance, and they get thrown in jail, and, and, or they lose their life or whatever, and, and God's not going, yeah, take it to them. No, God grieves because their chance of repentance is lost. He grieves that. Do I grieve that? The wrong image of God is we often have that he's out to get someone. He's a punishing God. He's an angry God. But we find his deepest desire is repent. Repent, turn away, and come into the kingdom of heaven. Now let me add, we'll read these. Don't think that the Beatitudes are like we're supposed to walk around. "Uh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm really sad, but I'm always sad because God is sad because he wants me to mourn. Not at all. It doesn't mean that we're to go about life sad, miserable, or grumpy. When we enjoy the fullness of life and relationship with God, we have that balance of enjoying all that God gives us. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, that we're to enjoy what God gives us. He's given us all things for our enjoyment, but at the same time, we can look at individuals in our lives. We can look at our culture and the direction of it. We can look at a world that continues to move away from God, and as we enjoy what God has, we also grieve those things that grieve God's heart. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. As a follower of Jesus, I should be gentle from the inside out. The term meek, we we dealt with it in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It's a term that is synonymous with self-control, with humility. It's a term that means power under control. It was a term used in equine, in uh, the horse world, because you had this powerful horse, but, but when he was broken and tamed, he was meek. He was powerful, but it was power under control. The person who's meek in this sense is a person who's not vengeful. The meek person spiritually is not a person who's out to get somebody, who's out to pay them back. Uh, That's not them. They're, They're not looking to push their own way. They're not looking to push their own agenda. They're not looking to get back at another for an infraction. When one understands that, when I understand that I'm spiritually impoverished, when I understand that uh, I have to, I, I'm grieving over what causes God to grieve, when I understand that, then it seems illogical to think that some way I can push for my own way. 
because I'm submitting everything I am and everything I desire to what God wants. I've done a lot of reflecting uh, about where I could have been, would have been, and all. You know, I, I was going to go to Kansas University, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. And then I saw my dad brought home a flyer from Moody Bible Institute. He had been there to a pastor's conference. And you know what attracted me to the Moody Bible Institute? The fact that tucked into that flyer was that they were going to be building a new gym. I wanted to be part of that. They didn't build it till years after I graduated. But they, were, they had plans for a brand new gym. I thought, yeah, I'm going to go play basketball for the Moody Bible Institute. I never did play basketball for the Moody Bible Institute. I played intramural. God was directing. I thought I was making all the decisions. But God showed me that you don't make the decisions. I make the decisions. You have the responsibility of following my lead. Those who in humility keep their power under control, God's, Jesus said they're going to inherit the earth. Don't see this as material wealth and prosperity. See it as an inheritance of all that God has based on your relationship with him. In fact, this section probably comes from Psalm 37 verses 10 and 11 and we won't go there right now but it's a contrast in Psalm 37 10 and 11 the psalmist says the wicked are going to disappear from the earth the wicked are and and remember back then land was very very important the land was significant you lived off the land your livelihood was from the land to inherit the land was everything and, and he says, the wicked who will disappear, but the meek who inherit the land will enjoy peace. The meek who inherit the land, they'll inherit the earth. They're, they'll inherit the, the peace of God. Inheritance is always based on a relationship. And for the Hebrew, the land was the core promise of God. The meek will inherit what God possesses. The already of that promise the already of that promise is the depth of soul satisfaction and the peace and release that comes from trusting God to do His will and exact His vengeance in His time. The meek will inherit everything that God has. The meek will have a soul satisfaction because they know that they don't have to make it work. They can trust God. The not yet of that promise is the assurance that through faith some, a time is coming that God's new heaven and new earth will be part of our reality as we follow him now. Already I have a depth, a soul satisfaction, a reminder that I serve a God who has everything under control and I don't have to worry the not yet is one day he's going to take care of it all. He's going to set it right. And we'll be in relationship with one another in a perfect earth, in a perfect world, in a world where we can enjoy all the, the, the benefits and the blessings of what God has created. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. As a follower of Jesus, I should crave that which draws me closer to God. 
a poor person who lives in abject poverty is a person who's famished and they crave food and water. If I understand that I am spiritually poor, then I know that I'm starving for God and His righteousness and His justice. You and I who claim to be followers of Jesus, therefore claim to be disciples, should crave God's righteousness, should crave God's justice in our world. We should desire that our lives reflect the righteousness and the justice of God. What a difference between those who are probably on that outside circle, the crowd, maybe just on the edge of it, like there's the disciples and there's the crowd and they were just standing right there. We call them the religious leaders. They had a righteousness. They had a righteousness that was driven by rules, a righteousness that was driven by externals, a righteousness that was driven largely by oppressing others. It was empty. And I believe people then and people today are tired of empty religion that is surface stuff. Even if they can't describe it, even if they can't put words to it, I think people continue to long for true righteousness and true justice. As a result, people do many good things. They volunteer. It's great to volunteer. They donate stuff. They give back. It's great. Those are good things. Those are wonderful things. They, I, I'm, I'm thrilled when that happens. You know, every now and then a GoFundMe comes across my Facebook feed and, and I, I read about it and sometimes it touches my heart and, and it's neat to see how people step up and they help out. And yet in the midst of that, you hear every now and then the one where someone used the GoFundMe page in the wrong way and they, brought, they, got it, they, 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 they fabricated the need because we live in a broken world. But when the world works, when there's goodness, when there's donating, when there's giving back, when there's helping, it feels right because it is right. But I'm convinced that when that is the sum total of my spirituality, the sum total of my righteousness in my most honest moments, I know something is missing. Something isn't right. True righteousness, hunger and thirsting for righteousness is bound up in the person and work of God and in relationship with him. And when we repent and when we enter the door to the kingdom of heaven and when we understand the core values of our Lord, we discover that by following Jesus, I mean really following Jesus, I mean running after Jesus, we find a satisfaction in our soul we find a satisfaction in the depth of who we are. We find a peace. We find a, a release. And it's not perfect because we live in the not yet time. So sometimes we have to kind of return to what we believe, return to those core values, return to what's really important. And I would submit to you this morning if there is not a soul satisfaction deep in your heart. Then in your pursuit of life, in your pursuit of justice, make sure you're not missing the pursuit of Jesus. He is first. And that's just the first four Beatitudes. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I get it.
We're going to break it down in bite-sized chunks as we go along. But I want to encourage you this week to take some time and consider these simple questions. You're going to have to write them down. I, I had so many slides to do. Uh, question one, what really are my core values? What really are my core values? Question two, how do those values match what I've learned today? How do those values match what I've learned today? Question three. What is one spiritual reality that I want God to help me start to change today? What is one spiritual reality that I'm asking God to help me change today? Question four, who will I ask to partner with me in this change? I am more and more convinced that we should not live the Christian life as lone rangers. We were designed for relationship, and we learn and grow in Jesus best in community and relationship. So question four, who will I ask to partner with me in this change? And question number five, when will I start? When will I begin? It's one thing to say, this is what I need to change. When do I start? When do I begin? If you believe in Jesus, you are a disciple. You are a follower. And today, we start in a new year just being reminded of what it means to follow Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for, well, thank you for the clarity, although sometimes it's the clarity of your word that kind of pulls us up short a little bit. Help us, Lord. Help us in our own lives, in our own spiritual journey, to see you, as we have sung already, to see you high and lifted up. And yet, Lord, help us to see you as you indwell us through the Holy Spirit and fill us and guide us and direct us. Thank you for our time together this morning. Use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.